Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 10. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Ian Dunican to talk about the impacts of caffeine on sleep and recovery in athletes. In this episode, Ian dives into the prevalence of caffeine use in professional rugby players, how caffeine impacts sleep pressure and sleep quality, as well as the impacts of pre-workout supplements on athlete total caffeine load, and surprisingly the gap here in player knowledge of actually how much caffeine they're consuming. He also talks about the subsequent effects on sleep duration and sleep efficiency after game day, as well as his his very interesting work on circadian rhythm and jet lag in athletes, sharing his work with super rugby team that had the honor of traveling the most miles of any team on the planet. Uh, Ian will also talk about sleep disturbances and provide some practical advice on applications for athletes and practitioners. Fantastic insights here from Ian in an area of interest for me and something I see a lot in clinical practice. Uh, If you are interested in more about sleep, don't miss season one, episode number four with Dr. Amy Bender of the Canadian Sport Institute in Calgary, as well as season number one, episode number six with Nancy Guest on caffeine, nutrigenomics, and how your genes impact the effects of coffee and caffeine. Of course, you can check out drbubs.com forward slash podcast for all the links discussed in this episode, as well as my layups, the quick actionable summary. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable and has been shown in the research to enhance stamina by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise-induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink tested and approved by informed sport and informed choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's get rolling. Season 2, episode number 10 on the impacts of caffeine on sleep and circadian rhythms with Dr. Ian Dudigan. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Dr. Ian Dunigan, PhD, who has 20 years of international professional experience in project management health and safety, and fatigue risk management systems in military, mining, oil, and gas. He is the Director of Sleep for Performance, an expert consultancy for FRMS and operations, and a researcher at the University of Western Australia, where he works with elite sporting organizations for optimizing performance and recovery. Ian, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Mark. Terrific. Well, you know, before we jump into talking caffeine, sleep, travel, performance, you've got a really interesting and diverse background. Can you maybe tell listeners a bit more about how you got into the sleep research side of things? 
Yep. So about 20 odd years ago, it started off my first experience with sleep deprivation. Um, I joined the military as an infantry soldier and anybody that's been in the infantry or even watched a few war movies would uh, sympathize or empathize with the lack of sleep that infantry soldiers go through. So that was my first experience of um, sleep restriction, sleep deprivation and basically lack of cognitive ability after a number of days awake. Wow. Um, af- after I left the, uh, the military, um, I moved here to Australia with my wife, who was Australian, uh, here in Western Australia. People are probably listening going, this guy is Australian, he sounds Irish, <laughs> yeah. that's right, I am Irish. Um, Confirmed, nice. I'm now, I'm, I'm now what we call a muggle, half Irish, half Australian. <laughs> um, been here for, for about nearly 16 years. And so, yeah, uh, was had always had an interest in human optimization and performance, but also integration with um, sort of logistics, uh, operations, and how can people kind of work better in their jobs to, to move forward. So I've been working in the health and safety space and business improvement space, as you say, for nearly 20 years around doing that. So I worked for major mining companies and um, oil and gas, doing that type, type of work Um not only around fatigue risk management, but also around human optimization, human performance, and the broader health and safety work. And uh, worked in places up in Canada, such as Labrador, down in Montreal, over in Vancouver, throughout the US in Salt Lake City, Denver, and uh, in South Africa, Mozambique, uh, Southeast Asia, and obviously throughout Australia as well. So bring that kind of international flavor to, to the projects. Absolutely. And then more recently, uh, more recently, I've been... Uh, doing research with the University of Western Australia in conjunction with the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra on the opposite side of the country, some five hours away, and also with a team here in Perth called the Western Force, who used to be a super rugby team. And so that's where most of my research has been focused on for the last three to four years. And we've looked at a number of different components of sleep and performance to optimize recovery. And... Um, and, and indeed, to, to, to get players prepared for, for game times. And so that's a kind of a quick overview of some of the work I've been doing. Fantastic. Well, I mean, you know, you wrote a great paper about pregame caffeine use in Australian rules football um, and its impact on sleep. So before we maybe jump into the findings, can you lay the foundation for folks by maybe explaining how caffeine works and how is this potentially impacts, you know, sleep and sleep pressure? Yeah, no problem. So the paper was actually not for Australian rules football. It was Super Rugby, which oh, is Rugby Union. Super Rugby, yep. That's that's okay. The, the, <laughs> I don't want people jumping up and down going crazy. So so yeah, the the kind of um, caffeine, as we all know, is is a great substance and and we all love it and we like to have it in the morning. And the reason why we have it in the morning is because of its alerting effects, um, and basically improves cognition and Im- improves performance as well. And that's been documented in the scientific literature in athletes however it does vary so some athletes report that it does give them a, a benefit in terms of cognition and physical performance other athletes say it does not one of the problems there is that there is no standardized test across the literature so you might get a group of cyclists who cycle faster over a 1k sprint time and then you might get a group of taekwondo athletes who may have better kick and accuracy or maybe have no improvement in the kick and accuracy when hitting pads. So the standardized in test is, is pretty uh, variable uh, between the different studies. So that's that's one challenge that we do have. Um, and so caffeine is used then obviously as a performance enhancer or an ergogenic aid as it's called. And we see this in the workplace. It's consumed probably one of the most legal psychoactive drugs that we have out there i think so yeah number one for sure <laughs> yeah and we and we all like to have it 
But we also know as well that later in the day or the more we consume throughout the day, that it does affect sleep. And what happens is what's called the pharmacokinetics of caffeine. So in general, when someone consumes caffeine in the form of coffee, Coca-Cola type drinks or, you know, even in in, energy drinks, that type of thing, energy drinks, yeah, um, no dose tablets, whatever it might be, it takes roughly about an hour to peak into the system. Then it's got a uh, half-life of approximately four hours, and then it's gone out of the system in eight hours. So for somebody who keeps drinking coffee throughout the day, maybe when they're working nine to five, if you have your last cup of coffee at five o'clock in the evening, that will kind of peak somewhere around six to seven. However, if you keep having coffee throughout the day, that peak may be pushed forward. And so if you have that coffee around, we'll use say for argument's sake, five, it peaks at around six, half six p.m., it's going to be at least half 10 to 11 p.m. before you can initiate sleep. And so that's what we know about how, how basically caffeine acts within the system in, in, in a human. Now, the foundation for this paper is we knew that um, caffeine was being used um, as an ergogenic aid in super rugby. And, but we didn't really know to what extent it was being used. And we didn't know to what extent it had an effect on sleep and recovery. And so that was really the foundation or the precursor to commencing the study with the Super Rugby team. And when you guys looked at the the caffeine intake, what were guys typically consuming before a game? You know, what was the range there? Yeah, so this is um, this is pretty interesting. Um, so it's probably just worth mentioning in the, in the for the methods for this paper, we did take saliva test. We did take saliva samples from the team members, approximately um, two hours before the game, and we took. Uh, post-game samples as well and so we can use saliva instead of taking blood which is which correlates well to blood samples so we can use that in lieu of taking blood a little handier right and yeah uh, yeah far more easier as well for the research <laughs> sure. to collect the data um, so what we did find was that there was a discrepancy what was reported and what was consumed so for example most players um, there was 23 players in the squad that went to play the game that night. So typically 15 players will be on the field and you'll have um, the remaining eight players as interchanges or substitutions that can come onto the onto the field during the game. And the game lasts about 80 minutes. Game kicked off around 7 p.m. that evening, so it's quite a late game or an evening slash night game. Only nine of the players reported that they consumed caffeine. And the main sources of caffeine consumption were Homebrew coffee, make a home yourself in a plunger or drip uh, feed, cappuccinos, so typical coffees you get in a coffee shop, yep. tea, cola drinks, no-dose tablets, and chocolate. They were the main sources of caffeine, and most players reported consuming the caffeine between 6 in the morning and 6 in the evening, with only a few reporting consuming caffeine after 6 p.m. in the evening. So most, most athletes were... Uh, consuming the caffeine actually between six and twelve. That's where most of the the percentage of the, of, of the caffeine consumption uh, fell. However, when we did look at what was reported and what really happened, we did find another discrepancy. So we found a significant increase in caffeine uh, change from pre-game to post-game. So, and that was in about seventeen players. So even though nine consumed that the only con- nine reported to consume caffeine, actually seventeen of them had elevated levels of caffeine compared to pregame. So double are so not reporting uh, accurately. Is that it? 
Yeah, not accurately. And when we dug into that, we actually found out why. And this was very interesting. And this was probably an oversight in, in from us beforehand, is we didn't understand to the extent that pre-workout was being consumed. So pre-workout powders are generally consumed, um, you know, uh, prior to a game or a training session. Um, and these things are very heavily dosed in caffeine. And so they weren't actually counting this as a, as a caffeine consumption. So it's pretty interesting that number one, players were not informed that these pre-workout drinks had caffeine. Number two is there was a caffeine strategy, but it was verbalized and it, the players were told it wasn't actually administered. And we know men were, were not very good at listening to things. <laughs> and so we get told to take one scoop. One scoop is good, two scoops is better, and three scoops were gonna turn into a superhero. And so that's what was happening. People were just basically consuming this um, as much as they liked and no one was really having an oversight on it. And so that that contributed to the significant increase in caffeine from pre-game to post-game. So quite a significant increase in all the players. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting when I was reading your paper because it's definitely something that I see a lot um, with athletes over here, you know, working with recreational elite pros that oftentimes, you know, completely unaware of not only that there's caffeine in their pre-workout supplement, but even the amounts of caffeine that might be in there. Mm. And so, Ian, what, what kind of yeah. effects then on sleep duration, sleep efficiency? What's going on with the, with the players after this intake? Yeah, so that was kind of the, the key thing we wanted to look at. We wanted to see, you know, what was happening here with the effect of caffeine on sleep. So what we did find is, and in the papers where we report the sort of the pregame nights, what was happening. And we looked at six measures. We looked at sleep latency, which is basically the time it takes to fall asleep. We looked at time at sleep onset, the time you do fall asleep. We looked at sleep duration, which is self-explanatory, how long you were asleep. Wake after sleep onset. So this is the number of minutes you wake up throughout the night. And then from those measures, um, sorry, there's one final measure here, which was time at wake. So time you wake up in the morning. And from those five measures, then we calculate a measure of quality, which is referred to as sleep efficiency. And so what we did find that was leading into the game, that sleep latency decreased. So players fell asleep quicker. We found that players on average went to bed approximately between 11 and a half, 11 every night. Um, for sleep duration, they progressively increased sleep on the nights before the game. So we think that athletes are in Super Rugby are using the days beforehand to kind of sleep bank or sleep optimize. However, we did find that the increase in sleep uh, was driven from the training schedule. So basically, they didn't have to be in as early the next morning. Therefore, they actually slept longer the next day and got more sleep. Interesting. So that's the, that's the kind of pre-game factors, which is which is very interesting. And we found this in a lot of other athletes too. But the effect of what it had on the um, uh, after the game is even more interesting. So they fell asleep, you know, relatively, you know, easily after the game. However, they did not fall asleep on average till half two in the morning. And some players didn't go to bed as late as half eight the next morning on a uh -huh. Sunday. Yeah. And four players did not achieve any sleep whatsoever. So having so, a good time after the game then? Well, there's a number of factors <laughs> Potentially. There. There's the, there's, yeah, there's the increase in the caffeine. There's post-game. Um, so these guys don't finish till nine, half nine. Obviously, you get shower, change, maybe some recovery, have a meal. There's also post-game media. Um, you know, and then maybe a couple of drinks or some socializing happening afterwards as well. 
Um, now, that all resulted in a quite a significant reduction in sleep duration, which uh, basically results in a sleep debt, which then took a number of days to recover. So it took an extra uh, additional three days before athletes were back up to the amount of same sleep they were having before the game. So basically what you see is when you look at the graphs is you see that sleep duration is significantly reduced after the game. So you get this kind of peaking before the game up a mountaintop, down into a valley of sleep duration, and then trying to climb back out again. And indeed, with some of the measures that we took over this season, we found similar patterns of sleep and wake throughout the season in, a, in some other studies that we've looked at. So caffeine most notably affected sleep latency after the game, even though it wasn't too bad, but it did affect it. It affected um, sleep duration, and it also had a decrease in sleep efficiency or a quality measure as well. So it's not the only thing that's affecting sleep after the game, but we do believe it's one of the major factors that is associated with it. Absolutely. And it was surprising to see. I mean, it was what, like five and a half hours the players were getting typically in terms of total sleep after the games? Yes. And like I said, four of them are 20% and did not achieve any sleep after the game. And is that a function of, you know, when people are used to getting up at a certain time throughout um, throughout the week, throughout the year for, for training if they're athletes or just for regular folk getting up for work? You know, if they're going to bed later, these players are sort of naturally waking up at their normal waking time, regardless if they're getting to bed late. Is that is that part of the story here? Yeah, that's a great point, Mark, because most people believe think would, would probably think, oh, well, they have the next day off. Surely they must just be able to sleep in and get extra sleep. But many of us will know that we do get used to the time of wake in the morning and it becomes a kind of a habitual pattern and we wake up and the same thing happened with these athletes as well. So, um, and this is this links into another factor as well, which is what's called chronotype. And you may have heard this before when you have people who are either a morning person or an evening person. Um, these guys were kind of neater. So they were kind of, you know, in between seven and nine, mm-hmm. um, which ties in with the time they were waking up after the game as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, this ties into obviously all the North American sports as well. I mean, basketball, hockey, baseball, all these sports are evening-type games. And, you know, did you guys uh, in your in your research come up with, uh, you know, is there a minimum caffeine dose that can impact sleep? Like how low can people go or is there a threshold where they can get away with a little bit and not impact sleep? Yeah, we didn't get into those specific specifics because um, the recommendations for as an ergogenic aid is approximately three milligrams uh, per kilo of body weight for caffeine. What I think is more important, what we would recommend is actually the timing of the caffeine. So in my example earlier on, if somebody finishing work at five o'clock and consuming ca- caffeine, well, you know, if they're consuming that to get through work, it's not really going to help them. You know, it's kind of over by then. And when I deal with individual athletes, I would say to them as well, the same thing. If you finish work at five o'clock in the evening and you go to the gym at six, there's no point in you know, drinking an energy drink as you're walking in the door or drinking pre-workout. Because the time you finish your workout, that now the caffeine is peaking. So you're actually getting no benefit from it. And it's the same thing with these rugby players as well. If you are going to use pre-workout or you are going to use caffeine strategically, you should consume it within 60 to 90 minutes before the game. And there's no point in consuming any caffeine during the game if you're sitting on the bench or at half time as well, because the performance enhancing effects of that is not going to kick in till after the game. So you kind of begin with the end in mind for recovery. So if a game is at 7 p.m., 
we recommend that athletes consume their caffeine between half five and six in the evening. And the additional point we would say to them as well as in the days leading up, if you can minimize or eliminate caffeine use, it will actually help increase the performance benefits of caffeine come game night, which we see this happening in military as well. That's really interesting because uh, definitely in clinical practice over the years, it's something we've observed in, in, in clients and athletes, this idea of, yeah, kind of taking it away in between. So it's, it's really interesting to see that, uh, you know, your findings there. And in terms of that ideal dose, then, is it still potentially between that two and three milligrams per kg that looks like a, a good number for most people to, to be achieving? That's right. And I think um, from memory, the literature says that if you go up sort of up around five milligrams and up up, up above, um, you may start getting a bit jittery and shaky as well. Um, but in saying that, some of the research has shown that doses of one low as one milligram uh, may affect sleep. Um, and that's in non-athletic populations, because this is the first paper to our knowledge that actually looked at the effect of caffeine on sleep in athletes, which is quite surprising. Whilst there's many studies in military and shift workers there is a scarcity of the effect of caffeine on sleep in athletes. Yeah, it's definitely a key one for for patients or clients who sort of have that evening espresso and still, you know, are actually struggling with sleep or or um, you know total sleep time and whatnot. So good good um, observation there. And circling back a little bit on you mentioned kind of after the games, players, you know, interviews, socializing, alcohol consumption. If we if we look back at you know how does alcohol consumption at night um, impact you know sleep and sleep quality? Yeah, and this is for, for not just athletes, but for anybody. For sure. Is that, yeah, basically alcohol, um, you know, is obviously the minute you finish drinking, you're going to start going into withdrawal. Um, so the hangover is kicking in straight away. So a number of factors happen is um, you obviously get dehydrated, which will affect your, your overnight recovery sleep. But whilst alcohol um, helps you fall asleep quicker, which a lot of people would say, you know, oh, I have a few drinks and I fall asleep quickly. And particularly from the country I come from, that's often said. Um, Irish people like to have a few drinks to go to sleep. But the go. problem is, it's going to cause more awakenings throughout the night. Um, it's going to cause more sleep disruption and sleep fragmentation. And then you'll also wake to bathroom earlier. So the first hour or two, you're going to be just kind of, you know, basically passed out. And particularly you've had a lot. But then as you go through the night, you're going to have more awakenings. Um, and it's going to affect your quality of sleep and that sleep efficiency is going to be diminished because you have those awakenings and you typically wake up earlier as well. And um, so we never see good quality sleep after alcohol consumption. So if you are going to have a drink, and I know people do, there's no problem in doing that whatsoever. But again, it's about timing. So you want to be trying to have that alcohol at least two to three hours before you initiate sleep. Unfortunately, many of us get home do some exercise, have dinner, have a glass of wine or a beer, sit down and watch Game of Thrones, and then we want to go to sleep. There you go. Uh, you'd be probably better off having that glass of wine with your dinner or your drink with, with your dinner, and then, you know, afterwards maybe having a chamomile tea or adequately hydrating as well uh, before going to bed as opposed to trying to have the alcohol prior to sleep. Yeah, that's great advice. and definitely one I see a lot with clients and even, you know, people with young children at home who are, you know, it's dinner, it's putting them to bed, and then it's the glass of wine afterwards to take the edge yeah. off. But you're saying it's, we've got to bump that up a little bit in terms of a couple hours and, and, and mitigate some of the negative effects on, on sleep. Yeah, if at all possible. And I'm not begrudging anybody a glass of wine after a hard day. 
<laughs> all, all those antioxidants <laughs> are great for you, so don't worry. Um, but as Conor, as Conor McGregor, the great Irish MFR, would say, timing is everything. There, so, you, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of plane travel now, obviously another heavy stressor on athletes, um, whether it's traveling across Australia, whether it's North America here, there's some, you know, definitely traveling across multiple time zones. How do things like jet lag and crossing multiple time zones start to impact sleep? I know you've done some work in that area as well. Yeah, so it's probably worth noting that here in Australia, we, as we spoke before uh, the start of this podcast, is that Australia is just as big as Canada or across North America, so five hours across the country. So even though it might be a domestic flight here, you're still going to have jet lag as you're crossing three time zones. So we worked with the same rugby team, the Western Force, um, looking at the effects of jet lag on recovery and performance. Uh, the Western Force are the well, the war, they've actually left the Super Rugby franchise now, but the Western Force were the most traveled professional sports team in the world. Second to them was the Oakland Raiders. So to give you a bit of an idea, the Western Force would compete here in Australia, Japan, South Africa, Argentina, and New Zealand. That's incredible. So basically, yeah, so basically the Southern Hemisphere, the whole of the Southern Hemisphere, and into Japan as well. Not to mention that some of the players also played for the Qantas Wallabies or the Australian rugby team, and they had to travel internationally then when they weren't playing super rugby. So these guys were clocking up some significant miles. So in general, you know, jet lag um, is a result of crossing time zones. If you fly north to south, so if you fly, let's say, from Toronto you know, down to maybe Miami. Yeah. It's probably on the same time zone or maybe one hour difference. Yeah, same time you're not zone. Really gonna, same time zone. You're not really going to experience jet lag going north to south. If you fly overnight, you're going to be tired because you didn't sleep in a good, nice bed. You might have been, you know, on a red eye. So that's more about discomfort. But you're not actually suffering from jet lag. You're just suffering from a poor night's sleep. But now if you start traveling in either direction, east or west, then you're going to have jet lag. So you go from Toronto to Vancouver, I think it's approximately three-hour time difference. Yep. Yep. You're going to have jet lag there. You go from Toronto to London, you're going to have jet lag. So we'll use that example, Toronto to Vancouver and Toronto to, let's say, London. So the best way to fly is always in a westerly direction. It's easier to adapt. And the worst way to fly is in an easterly direction. So if you're flying to London, it's going to take you, it's going to be more difficult for you to synchronize that time zone. And if you're flying west to Vancouver, it's going to be easier for you to adapt to that time zone. And in general, as a general rule, it can take you up to uh, one day for every hour time zone you cross. So the example of Toronto to Vancouver, three hours, it may take you three days to get used to that new time zone. So one time zone equals one day. And in your experience, are there some folks who just, you know, can do it more quickly or others that can take a long time? Have you seen uh, with the different athletes or or clients? Yeah. So um, we measured this in the Western Force when they traveled from Perth to play the game, jumped on a plane the next day, flew to South Africa, had a few days there, played the game, jumped on a plane, flew to Argentina, played the game, flew home, and three days later played another game. So it was probably the biggest jet lag study that we can think of anyway. Wow, yeah, for sure. And we used a, a device called a ready band from Fatigue Science who were based in Vancouver and Toronto. And we use that device to um, measure players' sleep and wake patterns. 
uh, and we were remotely able to look at that data every day and even hour by hour. And that data allowed us to predict performance or effectiveness. So we were able to look at their um, cognitive performance for the present time, the previous time. So if they wore the watch for 20 days, we had all that data. And more importantly, we were able to predict out for 16 to 20 hours the cognitive performance of these players. And from that as well, we were able to look at uh, adaptation to the time zone. So we were able to see um, how quickly the players adapted. In general, we were able to adapt all of these players to this new time zone in 24 hours. Incredible. So every, so every time they flew from like Perth, South Africa, South Africa to Argentina, within 24 hours, most of the players were adjusted. Now, coming back to answer your question, what's some of the strategies we did to do that? Obviously, there's a huge intervariability um, between individuals and, and some people really adjust really quick. The benefit we had here was we were all, the team was always flying west, which works in our favor, yep. so it's easier to adapt. Um, we developed a jet-like plan for the team. We worked with a doctor as well to use Tamazepan, which is a sleep medication which is approved to, be, to use, which is a four-hour life. So basically, if the players consume this Tamazepan, they would fall asleep for approximately four hours. We had a caffeine strategy. We had an alcohol strategy. So basically the avoidance of alcohol before <laughs> flying. Um, as well. so, yeah, so we took all these factors into account. And this was quite tempting as well because the players were obviously flying business class, which obviously helped. Uh, we provided them with a strategy around when to sleep, when to be awake. And we tried to, um, when they left the time zone, we were trying to synchronize them to that new time zone as quickly as possible. Um, you know, so if they were in Perth, we were trying to get them out to South African time, you know, throughout the week, we were delaying training scheduling and so on. We also used, um, can try to control light and dark cycles as much as possible. So when the players arrived at a certain location, we would tell them, everybody's got to wear sunglasses. When you get on the team bus from the airport and you're going to the hotel, we need to close all the curtains on the bus. And we don't want any stimulating music on. We don't want any iPad usage or, you know, electronic device usage. We just want you guys to relax, get into your hotel room, and we want you to try to um, have sleep for maybe two to three hours. And then we would have a strategy around what training would be done that day. And typically, it would involve a lot of natural light exposure. So we would do the reverse then in the afternoon, as an example, where we'd say to players and the coaches, bring the guys out for a light session, a light aerobic session, 20 minutes to 60 minutes, um, very easy to a moderate intensity, nobody to wear sunglasses, nobody to wear hats. We want to expose them to as much natural light as possible and, um, you know, to help synchronize them to that new time zone, have them observe the sun going down, the change from light to dark, and also, like I said before, a caffeine strategy about avoiding caffeine because what we want to do is try and synchronize these guys to this new time zone as quickly as possible. So we're using all these kind of um, external cues to try and synchronize them. Sunlight, meal times, training schedules, uh, outdoor activities, um, and so on to try and get them into that new time zone. Fantastic. And of course, with the evening avoidance of caffeine, is that something on the flip side? If it was in the AM, would you would you add some caffeine there potentially with a, with an athlete to help to cue up the uh, on that rhythm and get on that new time zone? Yeah, for, for sure, Mark. Yeah. And we actually did that as well. We actually said specifically, you know, instead of saying to athletes, and this was a mindset thing we did as well, we didn't typically tell athletes when, when not to do something, but we flipped around and said when you can do something. So we said, you can wear sunglasses here. You can consume as much caffeine as you like until 12 o'clock in the day. 
you can spend as much time outside as you like from one o'clock in the afternoon till six o'clock. So we try to change all the language to be positive as opposed to don't do this and don't do that. You know, so we tried to do that for about 80 percent of the of the of the planning. 20 percent of the planning was like definitely don't consume alcohol here. Definitely don't consume caffeine. But we tried to view it all as um, as positive reinforcement as well. Now, the other thing we did as well, Mark, that's worth noting here is we used and this would tie into training scheduling. We used biomathematical modeling and we used a model that was developed by the U.S. military and also used by fatigue science in Canada. And this has been used by the Vancouver Canucks and the Seattle Seahawks. And we use a model called FAST, a fatigue avoidance scheduling tool. So we were able to sit down before we even planned the flights, before we even planned any of the training. And we were able to put all these variables into this model and come out with a score of effectiveness or performance. And then we could make changes to the model. And we could say, well, what if we flew on a Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning? Or what happens if we fly on a Thursday night at 12 o'clock and we could see all the variation in performance and potentially the best way to optimize performance when we arrived at a location. Um, so really interesting. Were there some, yeah, we had, uh, some had, real had, red flags that came up in terms of definite things to avoid or things that would definitely throw that uh, out of balance for, for teams? Unfortunately, it's not a, I can't give you a, a kind of an answer about these are the things not to do or, or what to do because sure. it depends on. Depends on so the time context, of the game. Right, yeah. yeah, so much context. Depends on the time of the game, direction of travel, the players you have. Because you might get one team who is very much an evening chronotype. They like to go to bed late and get up late. Or you might have a team that's a bunch of you know early birds. So it depends on that. Um, and it also depends on the prevalence of sleep disorders. It depends on, yeah, it's kind of, I sound like an economist, you know, <laughs> on the news saying, you know, it really depends on the market forces, but it really actually does depend on all these variables. And we use all those principles and to design that plan or that schedule for the, for the coaches, uh, players and athletes, whether it be teams or individuals. Amazing. Yeah. It's so interesting. And you, of course you mentioned sleep disorders and I know, um, in certain sports like American football or rugby, you know, we get bigger players, greater neck circumferences that's been associated with increased risk of things like sleep apnea. Can you, can you speak to that and in, in your work around sleep disorders? Yes, we have a paper in review actually looking at this. Um, and it's the prevalence of sleep disorders in super rugby players and rugby players, rugby union players typically are very similar to American football or NFL players, um, or even heavyweight fighters. So, this paper, um, or in this study, again, to, to, to our knowledge, we're the only, um, this is the only study that actually used level one polysomnography in lab testing. A number of papers are out there which have looked at uh, the prevalence of sleep disorders, but using, I suppose, kind of cut down devices. So there was a paper in NFL back in 2010 by uh, the author Rice, and they looked at the um, prevalence of sleep-related breathing disorders in 137 NFL players. And um, if I recall correctly, they found about 20-odd percent of players had a sleep disorder, um, yeah, sleep-related like, breathing It was about double the uh, the average, wasn't it, the population average? Yeah, so they had a, um, yeah, I, it was 19%, that's what it was, um, just got some notes here in front of me. So 137 NFL players, 19% of those players had mild obstructive sleep apnea. Now, it's worth noting as well, when we talk about sleep disorders, there's actually 80, 80 wow. plus sleep disorders. Um, many of the papers out there have really kind of just focused on sleep-related breathing disorders. Mm-hmm. There has been some other papers, um, 
and I can never pronounce this or this author's uh, name correctly, so apologies, to Miletio, I think it is, and it was conducted T-U-O-M-I-L-E-H-T-O. If he or she is listening, they're probably throwing rocks at the speaker at the moment. <laughs> so sorry for that. Um, they screened 107 athletes for potential sleep disorders. Um, oh, sorry, more than that. And they had a hundred. Um, sorry, they screened 107 athletes, and about 13% of those athletes had um, um, obstructive sleep apnea as well. So high numbers, um, you know, compared to the general population. In our study, we found that approximately 24% of our players had obstructive sleep apnea. And we did the the top notch in lab level one polysomnography. Yeah. yeah. And so we found 24% of the players had it. And we also found that 12% of our players had periodic leg movement disorder. And what this is is basically uh, movement of the lower leg overnight whilst asleep. Now you get restless legs during the day and you get periodic leg movement overnight. And so um, these were the two most prevalent sleep disorders in this group. Now, whilst players reported that they had insomnia, there was no relationship with measures of insomnia from the sleep dis- from the sleep disorder questionnaire related to insomnia, the ISI, the Insomnia Severity Index, and the polysomnography data, um, which would we would extract some of those measures to look at for insomnia, and there was absolutely no relationship with those. And come back to your point, Mark, about general kind of characteristics or anthropometric data from the general population, we found no relationship between body mass index and we found mm. no relationship with neck circumference. Wow. Now, however, since um, since we submitted the paper the first time, um, a paper was published in Rugby League, which is similar to Rugby Union, and they used level two polysomnography, uh, which is the next level, the next level down from um, polysomnography level one. And they actually found the same thing as we did, that there was no relationship with body mass index and no relationship with neck circumference. But what they did find, which we didn't look at and which I think is great, is they did find a relationship between skin fold thickness and OSA. So basically, the higher the body fat, the more prevalent that they would have, the more prevalence, uh, the higher the prevalence, sorry, of obstructive sleep apnea in the players. Gotcha. It's definitely a clinical practicing, you know, heavier sets, uh, higher body fat, more visceral fat seems to be. Um, so it's interesting to see that, that difference between BMI and actually percent body fat. Yeah. And they also found some other interesting differences as well, because they had a lot of um, Polynesian players. So from around New Zealand, Maori, from the islands as well, like uh, Tonga and so on and Samoa. And there was actually a higher prevalence of sleep disorders with those guys as compared to people that came from a kind of a European uh, background. And that's most likely um, related to the shape of the mandible or the jawbone, which we do see in general population as well. And so you may find that, um, you know, people in those demographics are more at risk just straight off the bat compared to uh, European descendants uh players so interesting that there's some variation there as well and we found out i think there's to my recollection there's published papers on that with african-american um people and also with people in southeast asia because they have the opposite the the jawbone actually sits back in and uh, obstructs the airway even if they are very skinny and small yeah that's so interesting and you know 
as you mentioned there, there's no relationship between insomnia as well. So a lot of these folks are not even going to be realizing that they're struggling with uh, sleep apnea or, 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 you know, poor sleep uh, quality, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Amazing stuff. Ian. now, you know, for yourself and your work or in general, you know, where do you see the evolution of, uh, of sleep research and the applications here in, in, in sport or in, for the rest of us uh, trying to get enough sleep to, to get through the days? Yeah, there's some very there's some interesting data coming out not only from sports but also from places like the Sleep Health Foundation and the Australasian Sleep Association. Um, Deloitte Access Economics have been involved um, in quantifying the cost of poor sleep. So I think whether you're an athlete, um, either professional, elite amateur, or someone who's really into optimizing your performance, or even just um, optimizing your performance at work, I think everybody can take you know, a slice of this and, and take it away. But a couple of areas going forward, I would say what we need to look at more in sports is the prevalence of sleep disorders, which we just spoke about, because it's f- very poorly understood in athletes and even in, in industry as well. And we know in the Western world, we're getting, you know, bigger, fatter, sicker, more diabetes, um, greater rates of mental health issues such as depression and anxiety and all these things are components that interlink and interplay with sleep and sometimes in industry we look at these relationships and it doesn't matter where we make the intervention whether we want to hit something like a person's weight if we get an improvement in lowering their body weight well then we might get an improvement in sleep which reduces the diabetes which maybe eliminates the sleep disorder and so on So I think sleep disorders on both athletic side and for people in general business is something that should be looked at. Secondly, I think more should be done on the caffeine strategy work and ergogenic aids. And there's still a whole host we can do around that in terms of research. And then going forward, um, we're looking at developing an athlete sleep framework where it talks about not just these, uh, sorry, it presents not only these topics or these factors, but a whole host of other factors to be considered by coaches, athletic performance staff, individual athletes or team athletes as well. And we want to have that at a level where any sport or any discipline can plug in, whether it be martial arts, winter sports, summer Olympics, team-based sports such as rugby, soccer, you know, whatever it may be, can use this framework to to help uh, improve sleep and recovery. And just to talk about all these different variables as well and how they could potentially plug them all together to optimize performance. And um, so, yeah, I think they're, they're the kind of things that would be probably shared uh, across industry and athletes as well. And we're doing some of that work as well on the industry side. So I'm heading up to Kazakhstan next month to speak about this at a, uh, a central Minex conference about alertness and productivity. So how can we use these human performance variables to improve productivity? And I'm also doing a talk in April as well on the other side to the sports guys in the British Association of Sports and Exercise Scientists around basically using biomathematical modeling, addressing sleep disorders and caffeine as well to optimize performance. Fantastic, Ian. Well, listen, you know, terrific insights here. And you know, before we wrap up here, I want to respect your time, but a, a question for you. I know Obviously, with athletes, you know, an athlete yourself, training in the afternoon, evening, people can get really um, energized and struggle to, to decompress. For yourself, whether it's after training or in general, you know, your sleep hygiene routine, your wind-down routine, you know, as the expert, you know, what do you uh, kind of implement yourself to help to support that deep and restful sleep? 
Yeah. So so for me, in the last few years, I, I turned a big old four zero this year. Um, congrats, which I used congrats. to think was I, I used to think was so old, but actually it's so young. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to be cool. Uh-huh. And so what I've done in the last few years for me, the first thing I have done to help my performance during the day um, and also for my sleep is I eliminated alcohol about four years ago. And so that was a, a significant improvement for myself. Wow. Um, I don't consume any caffeine after 2 p.m. And I love coffee. So I try not to consume any coffee after 2 p.m. I think if I had to live on coffee, I would do that alone. Uh, it's likewise. Um, <laughs> in terms of training, uh, my training can be variable. I like to run um, and I've competed in ultra marathons, which, you know, I've run up to 20 hours straight. So it's, it can be hard sometimes to to know what's the best time of day to optimize for an ultra marathon when you've got to run 100 miles. So, <laughs> yeah, I would um, imagine. Um, and then... If at all possible, I also like to uh, do mixed martial arts and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training, although I don't compete, but I do enjoy the training and I'm quite competitive in, the, in our own gym. Uh, I try to avoid late night training wherever possible. I'm typically more towards an early morning person, so I try to get out of the gym by 7 p.m., quarter past seven at the latest. I don't stay around till half eight because I find if I do stay around, I just can't really wind down afterwards. And then when I get home as well, for me, I like to have a cold shower. So I might get into the shower initially, um, have a sort of lukewarm, get clean, and then I'll stand under a cold shower for a couple of minutes. And I find that really just helps to relax me as well. And then I find it very hard to fall asleep. So I like to read for a while with low light, no TV, no excessive uh, noise in the background. And then when I go to sleep, I generally will listen to um, maybe either a meditation or a very light audio book or something in the background. And that's, that works well for me um, because, I have, like I said, I have a lot of trouble falling asleep. Other people, um, like my wife, you know, they just, <laughs> like, they just go like, getting hit in the head with a hammer. I look at her in 20 seconds, she's asleep. Um, you know, so every, everybody's going to be different as well. But there are some of the things I do. Um, and then in the morning on awakening, I try to consume, you know, at least a half a liter of water within the first half an hour. Uh, have a coffee, um, and then I probably don't eat breakfast till about maybe 10 o'clock. I tend to have a later breakfast, um, and my preference is sort of high-fat breakfast around 10 o'clock, and uh, I feel more comfortable around then having it. The other, the other last thing, Mark, which I did neglect to say, is that before I go to bed, so typically around this time, 7 p.m., I'll make a to-do list today for tomorrow. So I'll have my plan completely done or my to-do list for tomorrow written tonight. So I'm not going to bed with those things in my mind. I'll make sure my task list is up to date. So I might have like a task hopper of like 50 things I've got to do. And then every Sunday I'll plan out my week in advance. And I find by having that plan for the week and then reviewing that every evening and making my to-do list for the next day and just spending five, 10 minutes reviewing my task hopper, that then I make sure that I'm not kind of carrying any undue stress from the day into the night. That's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, piece of advice there and definitely something that I've, I've tried to implement, which helps, but I know, I know for so many of my clients and athletes as well, this is just a huge, huge piece of it. So great stuff here, Ian. You know, Where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic work and research? Yeah, so there's a number of ways you can get hold of me. Um, for commercial um, business work or for um consultations whether it be athletes or business whatever way you want to talk about there you can get me at melius m-e-l-i-u-s consulting 
um, and that's our consulting arm. You can also get me at sleep for the number four performance dot com dot au. Have a website there as well with lots of links to podcasts, um, TV appearances, blogs, information. There's a free jet lag book there as well. You can download for about thirty eight pages. Little ebook you can download and, and have for free. Um, so you can get me there. Uh, I also host my own podcast called Sleep for Performance Radio. Uh, we have about 18 episodes uh, out at the moment, and they range from endurance athletes like Gavin McClurk from North America to the Western Force rugby coach to Marcel Brackey from the USA rugby team to people from research like uh, Georgia Roman, who's looked at jet lag and athletes in Olympic sports. Uh, we've got people from industry such as Caterpillar in North America. Uh, we've got John Paul Kay on recently looking at sleep disorders in rugby league players, Mad- Madison Jones and electronic devices. Um, so there's many, there's, you know, you can, uh, that podcast is free, typically comes out every two weeks. We're going to drop an episode in the next couple of days with Daniel Bonner, who published a great paper on sleep hygiene in athletes that was uh, picked up by Sports Medicine, which is the top journal in the world. Fantastic. And so we'll have him on the next few days. So plenty of uh, you know free resources there. And I blog quite regularly as well. So you can sign up for those as well at sleepforperformance.com. You can find me on Twitter, at sleepforperform. Although I do get a bit vocal during uh, MMA fights and rugby. <laughs> so Fantastic. Dis- disregard the swear words and the, and the craziness. Mm. And um, on Instagram as well, at sleep at sleepforperform where I take pictures when I'm out running in the beautiful hills around Perth or getting my head beaten in at the gym. So <laughs> either which way you can find me. Terrific. Well, I'll definitely include all those links with the podcast summary and the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Ian, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for everyone else to tune in today. Uh, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you as well on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share with friends and colleagues. Thanks again, everyone, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.